Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning again, everyone. Um, Five months ago, we started a project as a community of faith where together uh, we are reading through the entire Bible um, in 2023. So uh, we started in January with the book of Genesis, and uh, we've been plowing our way through the Old Testament. We started with the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch, which is all about how Israel became a nation. Then we actually took a break um, during the season of Lent. We read some Psalms and we read a number of books from the New Testament. Uh, But then we jumped back in and we read um, the Old Testament historical books that follow uh, the history of the nation of Israel. So today, we actually are about to start a brand new section of the Old Testament. And I want to talk about that today. Um, And even if you uh, are new or visiting or perhaps you were not here in January when we started this, or maybe you were here and you were like, I'm not doing that. Um, Even if you haven't been a part of this project, I still have a challenge uh, for you today because we're going to talk about a section of the Bible that is really, really important. We'll talk about why it's important and then wherever you are on your journey of faith, whether you're uh, new to the Bible or you've been reading it your whole life or somewhere in between, um, I've got a really specific challenge for you. So um, first we need to look at a timeline again. So let's put this on the screen. Uh, This is the history of Israel um, from about 1200 BC. That's uh, roughly right after the exodus from Egypt when the Israelites came out of Egypt all the way to about 400 B.C., which is after the Babylonian exile when the people of Israel were exiled to Babylon and then some of them had returned back to Jerusalem to try to rebuild their lives. And on top of that timeline are all the historical books, uh, and we've read about half of those so far. But there are two other groups of books that run parallel to this history. In other words, they come from the same time period, but they give us a very different perspective on this history. And those two groups are the poetry and wisdom literature and the prophets. Now, we'll get to the prophets in about a month, but for the next month together, we're going to be reading the poetry and wisdom literature. And so we want to talk about that today, and I want to just start with a question. Um, How many of you like reading poetry? Let's see a raise of hands. Okay, that's what I thought. A few. Not very many, right? Most of us don't actually enjoy reading poetry. And it started in high school, right, when we had to read Shakespeare or Homer, and it didn't make any sense, and it wasn't any fun, and it was difficult to read, and it's hard to understand. And you read lines over and over and over, and you're thinking, what in the world is this poet trying to say? And so most of us just don't read poetry poetry very often, certainly not in our spare time. And yet I would suggest that probably all of us actually like poetry way more than we think we do. Consider that almost all of the music we listen to is poetry. The the music that's playing in your AirPods all the time, it's poetry. The songs that we sing over and over and over, it's poetry. The words and the lyrics that many of us have memorized, it's all poetry. And and so why is it that when it comes to music, most of us actually love poetry, but we rarely actually read it? Now, maybe it's because those words and those lyrics and those poems are actually set to music. That certainly plays a significant role. But I think it's deeper than that. I think the problem is most of us just don't even know how 
to read poetry. We don't really understand how poetry works. And that's a significant problem because if we want to read or engage the Bible, a third of the Bible is poetry, right? So we need to have a better understanding of how to actually read and engage poetry. So uh, let me just give you a few traits. I'm just going to give you three of them. We could go through a bunch of them, but let me give you three traits of poetry real quick. The first trait is that poetry uses metaphors, symbols, hyperbole, and all kinds of other literary devices, right? So a metaphor is when you compare one thing to another. So following in Joey's footsteps from last week, we'll talk about the Denver Nuggets again, right? The Denver Nuggets are like a steamroller right now, are they not? Now, that doesn't mean they're an actual steamroller, but you know exactly what I mean when I say that. They're a, a steamroller is a picture or a symbol of what they are doing to every single team that they play, now, in biblical poetry, we say, and we even sung this just a second ago, that God is our rock. God is our fortress. That doesn't mean God is actually a rock. He's not actually a castle or a fortress. It's a way of saying that God is strong and that God will protect us and he can be a refuge for us. That's what metaphor does. Hyperbole is when something is greatly exaggerated. When you hear someone say, I literally died last night when I found out that they broke up. And you're like, no, you didn't literally die. And in fact, you are literally using the word literally in the exact opposite way that it's supposed to mean, right? But that's hyperbole. It's this way of exaggerating something. And we do it all the time. In fact, metaphors and symbols and hyperbole are something we use in common everyday language but here's what you need to know. They are the foundation of poetry. These literary devices, and there's a whole bunch of others we could talk about, but those are sort of the main ones. They are the foundation of the way that poets and the words that poets use to communicate their ideas. Here's the second key trait of poetry. Uh, parallelism, rhythm, and cadence. And this is probably what's most recognizable about poetry. The lines of poetry are not written in the same way as other literature. There are not normal sentences and paragraphs of varying lengths. That's what we call prose. And most of what we read, if you read a novel or a nonfiction book or a historical book or you're just reading articles online, most of it is written in prose. But poetry follows a different order. It follows a rhythm, a cadence, a pattern. You might have two lines or three lines or four lines and they connect to one another in some very intentional way. Now sometimes they rhyme at the end of the line and sometimes they don't, but there's usually a very purposeful rhythm in the way that poetry works. So Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the famous American poet, started one of his famous poems in this way. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. Did anyone else have to memorize this in school growing up? Right? This is a famous line. Or here are some lines from a famous modern poet. So it's going to be forever or it's going to go down in flames. You can tell me when it's over if the high was worth the pain. Got a long list of ex-lovers. They'll tell you I'm insane because you know I love the players and 
You love the game, right? We all know this, right? So there's rhyming here. Uh, there's parallelism in the lines, right? Parallelism means the second line is actually connected to the first line. The second line is either saying the same thing as the first line, but in a different way, or it's expanding on the previous line, or it's contrasting with the previous line. So it's going to be forever, or it's going to go down in flames, right? Because you know I love the players, and you love the game. So these are really common and important traits of poetry. And you actually find the same thing happening in the poems of the Bible. So let me read you a few lines from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. And yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and it makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Do you see the parallelism here? Do you see the cadence? Do you see uh, the rhythm? Do you see the metaphors that are being used, right? The, the, the skies are somehow speaking. They're not really speaking, but they have a voice. And the sun is like a, a groom on his wedding night, or it's like this long-distance runner marching across, right? This is how poetry works. Now, there is a third important trait of poetry, and it gets really to the purpose of what poems are all about Poetry is emotive, and it's experiential. In other words, uh, more than anything else, poetry wants you to feel something. It wants you to experience something. It's not about information. It's not primarily about knowledge. It's not primarily about education. It's not about thinking something. It's about helping you feel something. But poetry wants you to begin to know something, not up in your head really, but in your body, in your gut, in your heart, in your bones. This is why the poet Robert Frost said, poetry is when an emotion has found its thought and the thought has found words. Or T.S. Eliot says this, genuine poetry can communicate before it is understood. It's doing something to you before you even understand what it's about. Or Emily Dickinson said this. It's great. If I read a book and it makes my whole body so cold, no fire can ever warm me, I know that is poetry. See, poetry is trying to do something to us. It's less concerned with what we think and more about what we feel and what we experience which is entirely different 
from reading other things the way we read them, when we read them for content, when we read something for analysis, when we read something for information, when we read articles online to just extract the knowledge or the information that we're looking for, when we read the news, when we read history books, when we read a story to understand the storyline or the plot line, that is not how you engage poetry. In fact, that's not how you listen to a new album that comes out from your favorite artist, right? Yes, there's a time to think about the lyrics and to examine them. And yes, there's a time to think about poetry and ask questions about what it means. But the first thing that poetry is trying to do is to help us feel something. It's often trying to help us long for something. This is what the Psalms are all about. They're about longing, It's helping us try to imagine something. Or maybe it's even helping us be bothered by something. Good poems often bother us. Poetry helps us engage something down here way more before it happens up here. Now, as I said, um, about a third of the Bible is poetic. And it's not just the poetry and wisdom literature that we're going to read for the next few weeks. Um, It's also the prophets as well. So if you are reading through the Bible in a year, um, then almost everything we read for the next three months is going to be poetry. And so we need to keep all of this in mind as we read these books, because we're going to have to engage them very differently than what we've been engaging for the past few months. Now, there are two books I want to mention that are sort of strictly poetry books. They're probably the two most famous books. They're the Song of Songs and the Book of Psalms. The Song of Songs is a set of love poems. It's celebrating the love between a man and a woman. And then the Psalms are essentially prayers put into poetic form. Prayers that were prayed to God, and then they were eventually set to music. And then for centuries and centuries and centuries, people have been singing these songs and these poems and these prayers over and over and over. Did you know that Jesus quoted the Psalms more than any other book in the Old Testament? He grew up with these songs. He sang them. He knew the lyrics. They shaped him. They formed him. So much so that when he was dying on the cross, the only words that he spoke came from the lyrics of the Psalms. And so if we want to understand the Bible, and if we want to be on a journey of faith where we are asking questions about what does it mean to follow Jesus, if we want to understand him and follow him, we better pay attention to the Psalms. And then we better know how to understand them and read them and engage them. Now, let's talk about wisdom literature for just a moment. Um, And let me just give you a few traits of wisdom literature as well, and then I'll talk about three specific wisdom books. First, uh, the form of wisdom literature is often poetic, meaning there's a huge uh, overlap between um, wisdom literature and poetry. Most wisdom literature actually uses the same forms, the same literary traits, the metaphors and the similes and the hyperbole and the, the symbols and the rhythms that poetry uses. So the form of wisdom literature is often very poetic. What's different is the content. And that's the second trait. Um, wisdom literature offers advice on how life works. 
Okay, when you read the wisdom books, it's like you're sitting down with a really wise sage, and uh, the wise sage is looking at you and saying, this is the way the world works. This is the way that life works. And you can make decisions that are in line with the way the world works and the way life works, and things will go well, or you can try to go against the way that life works, and when you do, there will be consequences. And then there's a third trait. Uh, Sometimes this advice is very specific and situational. Oftentimes it's more general. So uh, there are many Proverbs. When we read the book of Proverbs that you'll see are very specific. They're about specific aspects of life, about money and food and work and marriage and anger and friendships and relationships and family. There's very specific advice there, but there's also a lot of wisdom literature that is more general. It's about offering advice on following the path of wisdom and figuring out what that looks like and then you applying that in every aspect of your life. Now, as I said, there are uh, three primary wisdom books in the Bible. Um, They are Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And I want to mention something really important about each one um, because we're going to be reading all of them together and then we'll wrap things up. If I could summarize... The book of Proverbs, here's how I would do it. If you do the right things, then you will prosper. That's the message of Proverbs, if you've ever read it before. If you follow this wisdom, right? if you don't go into debt, if you're not lazy, if you work hard, if you guard your words, if you teach your kids well, if you surround yourself with good friendships, if you choose a good spouse, right? If you follow all of this advice, then you will prosper. You'll be happy. You'll find joy in life. Or you'll actually find good health. You'll live a long life. Or sometimes it literally says you will prosper financially. You will be successful in the work that you try to do if you pay attention to this wisdom. And I think we would all say it's true. If you've read some of those Proverbs, I think we would all say, if we followed this advice, in fact, there's a lot of times I haven't followed this advice and it didn't go well. If I always followed this advice, things would turn out good. Most of the time. (laughs) But not all the time. And that's where Job and Ecclesiastes come in. They're like the exceptions to the rule of Proverbs. They're like the minority report, if you will. They're basically saying, yes, most of the time Proverbs is right, but not all the time. Here's the message of Job. Sometimes you do all of the right things and you still don't prosper. And then here's the message of Ecclesiastes. Sometimes you prosper and it still feels hollow. You see, Job does all of the right things in life, and yet he still suffers tragedy. And we often think of Job as a story, but it's not really a story. There's just a little bit of story at the beginning and a little bit at the end. But almost the entire book of Job is he and his friends sitting around and having these philosophical discussions asking, why is this happening? It seems like I've followed all of the wisdom. It seems like I've done all the right things. I have good character. I've chosen the right relationships. I've done everything I know to do. So why am I still suffering? And they have these debates and they give these wisdom speeches to one another where they're trying to figure this out. Then you get to Ecclesiastes and the writer 
who many people think is King Solomon. He, uh, he's gotten wealthy. Uh, he's gotten famous. He's gotten pretty much everything he could ever want. He has arrived at the destination of prosperity. And yet it still feels hollow. It still feels meaningless. It feels like something significant is missing. It's just not as fulfilling as it was always promised to be. Now, here's the key for us with these three wisdom books. We must hold these books in tension. In other words, they all go together. Not one of them gives us the full picture of wisdom in life. They must be held in tension with each other, and they don't cancel each other out. We should still read the Proverbs. We should still seek out their wisdom. And we should know that when we follow the advice they offer, generally speaking, life will be better. We will be working with the way that we were made to work in the world. But not always. There will be moments. And there will be seasons in life where we need to lean into the book of Job. Where it feels like we're going through something and... It's because of no fault of anything that we've brought on ourselves. And we don't know what to do. And we need to lean into the wisdom that Job offers. And then, of course, there's also moments and seasons that Ecclesiastes will give voice to something that many of us are often feeling. Especially as affluent Americans who have been chasing the dream of prosperity most of our lives. Some of us have arrived there And concluded, it's not as great as I thought it would be. Something is still missing. So don't throw out any of these books. Hold them in tension and recognize that together they provide the wisdom that we need. Now, I want to close with a challenge. Um, If you are a part of the group uh, who is reading through the entire Bible in a year, then my challenge to you is simple. It's the same one we've been talking about for five months. Don't give up. Just keep going. And know that we're about to read a whole bunch of different books that are going to require a different kind of engagement. So be open to that. Realize it's going to feel different. You, you might... Uh, experience something different. You might not be able to think about it or make sense of it in the way you have other books that we've read so far and just be open and ready for that. Now, if you are not reading through the Bible in a year with us, then you have two options. Here's your challenge. Number one, you can either join us, right? If you can't beat them, just join them. Um, And now would be a really easy time to just jump in and join us. We're just starting this brand new section of the Bible. And so if you want to jump in and join us, everything you need to know about doing that is at newdenver.org slash Bible 2023. There's all the suggestions about what Bible to read, what translation. And then, of course, there's the actual plan that we're following. And we are starting the book of Proverbs tomorrow. So you can join us. Or if you're not ready for that or you're not interested in that, I still want to encourage you to read something. And so I want to encourage you over the next two months to simply read the book of Psalms. And so we put together a plan. It's at newdenver.org slash psalms. Over the course of eight weeks, you will read through all of the psalms. And it does not take very long. We're talking 10 or 15 minutes a day. Would you be willing 
to give this a try. You may not learn anything new, especially if you grew up in church. You've heard many of the songs. You've sung many of the songs. You're familiar with some of them. So you may not learn anything new, but with a new approach to them, perhaps you will feel something new. Maybe you will experience something new. And I can't wait to see what God does in our desire to learn more about him and seek him out in every aspect, not just with our heads, but with our hearts and with our entire lives as well. So let me pray for us. God, I thank you um, for so many uh, who have had this desire to learn more about you by reading um, these ancient words that were written thousands of years ago. It's not easy at times. Uh, It's confusing. It can be challenging. Sometimes it's enlightening. And sometimes there's something going on beneath the surface that we can't even really put words to. And so I just pray um, for the next month or so as we engage some of these new forms, some of these poems, some of this wisdom literature, I pray more than anything else that you will meet us in that desire. It's not just to study. It's not just to learn. It's to know something deeper about truth and reality and love and ultimately you. We know that Everything we long for and everything we hope for is ultimately found in you. And so help us in that journey of growing closer and closer to you. I pray this in your name. Amen.